Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. Most of Acts chapter 8 was about Philip and the revival the Lord used him in, which was in the city of Samaria. The story takes in the conversion of a well-known sorcerer. Peter and John were sent by the apostles to help Philip with the revival, so they left Jerusalem for Samaria. After Peter and John arrived in Samaria, the people were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Simon wanted to buy the gift to see people baptized in the Spirit. This compelled Peter to give him a terrifying rebuke, which moves the man to repent of his sin. The final portion of Philip's story is when an angel visits him and tells him to leave the revival and to go into the desert. The angel gave him the exact location where he was to go, and to get there he would have to travel over a mountain and through a desert. The command doesn't make sense to us humans who gauge our importance and value upon what we do and its observable results. Leaving revival to go into the desert doesn't seem like an advancement in ministry after faithfully serving in the present calling as a revivalist. God is interested in our obedience, not our comfort, feelings of success, or what others think about us. Right obedience is always quickly acted upon. This is why faith is vitally important in obeying the Lord, for we must believe in Him and His promises before we can live in obedience to His will and commands. Jesus gave a parable to the religious elite on the necessity of obedience in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go to work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. This is a disturbing parable and clearly speaks about obedience. The religious Jews said yes to God but didn't love and obey Him. While many wicked people that said no to God later turned from their life of sin to live a life of loving obedience to Him. There's a deeper place of obedience where people learn how to abide in Christ. This is where the Lord can accomplish a deeper work in and through us so that He can be glorified through His obedient, loving children. Philip's quick obedience to Christ was a sign that he was living a deeper life in Christ where he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was faithful to all of his promises. We will never live a life of quick obedience if we are consumed with unbelief. Faith must be in operation if we are to let love be the driving focus of our obedience. This is where the Holy Spirit can use people in mighty ways. Philip obeyed the Lord's command that came through an angel, and he left the revival and went to the place he was directed to go. The first command brought Philip to the place the Lord wanted him to be. In verse 27, we are told that Philip came upon an Ethiopian eunuch who was a very important official in the Ethiopian queen's government. Now that his first act of obedience was accomplished, the Lord would give him the next command. In this account, obedience to the second command allowed Philip to accomplish the Lord's will. This is how it usually goes. The Lord gives us the first command, which gets us going in the direction the Lord wants us to go in. And then the other commands follow to give greater clarity to what we are to do and how we are to accomplish His will. King David wrote in Psalms 119, 
verses 103 through 105. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. The Holy Spirit and the Word are a lamp to our steps so that with each step we take, we can stay on the path the Lord set out before us. The Lord didn't say He would be a floodlight to us so that we can see clearly way into the future. Solomon stated in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are a way to life. Step by step, the Lord was leading Philip, and he was learning how to quickly obey, which made the way for him to be more powerfully used by God. Verse 28 states that the Ethiopian eunuch was on his way home and was sitting in his chariot reading the book of the prophet Isaiah. There are five important points we see in this verse. The first is that the man was on his way home to Ethiopia after going to Jerusalem to worship God, possibly for the Feast of Pentecost. Next, this reveals that he was Jewish in faith. Given the history of the Ethiopians, the man was probably raised in a religiously Jewish home, though he wouldn't have been of the lineage of the patriarchs. Judaism is said to have come to the Ethiopians through King Solomon, which meant that the man belonged to a family that had converted to Judaism and was a worshiper of Jehovah. The third point is that he wasn't merely a religious Jew, but he was devout and it appears that he wanted to love and serve the Lord. The religious Jews legalistically held to the Mosaic law, but didn't have a real relationship with God. This Ethiopian wasn't stuck in dead religion, but was genuinely seeking after God with the spiritual light he had been given. Fourth, this was a long, arduous journey, and given his high governmental position, he would have been traveling with a large number of servants and soldiers to protect him. We are told that he was a treasurer of the Ethiopians under the rule of Queen Candace. As a high official, he needed to travel in safety, which meant he traveled with a large entourage. Though he held this high governmental position, the fifth point reveals that he was a trusted servant whom Queen Candace had no fear of being treacherous. We can also tell that he was a very wealthy man in that he could travel with such a large entourage, drive a chariot, which was the vehicle of the military or the super-rich, and he owned a book of the prophet Isaiah. All books were extremely expensive because they had to be copied by hand. But a copy of the Old Testament scripture was all the more valuable because it had to be an exact copy or it would be destroyed. Everything about the man showed wealth and power. Yet there was a humility about him which we will soon see. In verse 29 we are told that the Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. The first command brought Philip to the place. The second command brought him to the man. It's impossible to say what Philip would have done if the angel told him to witness to the Ethiopian who would have been an intimidating person, especially with him being surrounded by all of his servants and bodyguard. Would Philip have had the courage to approach a man of such distinction? But given that the first command brought him to a desert place where the Ethiopian was sitting in his chariot, half the challenge was already conquered. We see that Philip had developed a character that was quick to obey, and this is an expression of great faith. We are all rebels by nature, so a life of quick obedience must be developed, and this can only happen if we make it a purposeful effort to live surrendered to the Lord. Some people are more compliant than others, but compliant people can be as inwardly rebellious as those who are outwardly rebellious. 
Those who are natural-born leaders can have some very serious problems with rebellion because they want to be in charge all the time. No matter the person, we all have to conquer our sinful, rebellious nature if we want to walk in loving obedience to God. If we really want the Lord to use us, then we must learn how to quickly obey Him. There's nothing good or noble about our rebelliousness. So the quicker we conquer it, the better off we will be, and the more we will accomplish for the glory of God. Philip developed a character that was quick to obey the Lord's commands, and so the Lord could use him in a great way because he knew that Philip would obey his word and the voice of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who are parents, what do you like better, a child who obeys your command or who rebels against you? A parent can love a rebellious child just as much as an obedient one, Yet the rebellious child will think that mom or dad loved the obedient one better, though this wouldn't be the case. The obedient child gets to know the tender love of the parents, while the rebellious one must face their disciplinary love. Why should we always be facing God's discipline when his heart's desire is for us to know the tender mercies of his love? A rebellious child can learn to be obedient if he or she wants to, But there's the problem of being rebellious. We fight against God instead of submitting to Him because we love our rebellion. How much have you missed of experiencing God's tender love because you refuse to obey Him? Has your rebellion, which is disobedience against God, ever proven beneficial to you? I think I can give an emphatic no. So why do we persist in our rebelliousness when it never gives us anything that's good? We read in verse 30, Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? Just look at Philip's obedience. He ran to the chariot. That's awesome. Once Philip knew what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do, he immediately responded to it, and he did it with a passion. I love that. This reminds me of the teenager David who ran at the giant Goliath to engage him in one-on-one combat. He faced off this seasoned warrior because he knew that the Lord would give him victory over that giant, and he did it with a sling and a stone. We should be running to fulfill God's will for our life and not let rebellion corrupt our heart, apathy to make us spiritually lazy, or busyness to distract us from our obedience to God. When we prove faithful in the little things, then the Lord will trust us in greater things. But we will never get to the greater things until we develop a life of loving obedience. What we see with Philip and the Ethiopian was a divine setup. The Ethiopian stopped traveling for whatever reason and just happened to pull out his very expensive copy of the book of Isaiah. And he just happened to be reading exactly where he was when Philip went up to him. Coincidence? Not in the least. This was a divinely appointed meeting. The situation opened the door for Philip to ask the all-important question, do you understand what you are reading? It seems to me that there was a God-ordained inability to understand what he was reading at that moment so that Philip could point him to the promised Messiah. The Ethiopian's response to Philip's question in verse 31 reveals a humble man who is seeking to know the Lord. He asked, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. This reveals the honest spiritual hunger the man had for truth. The Ethiopian goes to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Yet on his trip back home, he knows something is missing. And he's reading Isaiah in an effort to know and understand God and his word. 
This spiritual hunger created in him a true humility that helped him to acknowledge that he needed help to understand what he was reading. To top this off, he invites a stranger to sit with him and explain the scriptures. But I imagine that when Philip came up to the eunuch, the Spirit of God was present in a real way that helped the Ethiopian to trust Christ's ambassador. Verses 32-34 shows how the Holy Spirit was working in the situation, preparing the Ethiopian to receive the gospel. The verses read, The eunuch was reading this passage from Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shears was silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? If you don't know it already, the Ethiopian was reading from what we know of as Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Of course, at that time, there wasn't any chapter or verse divisions like we have today. We can say that Isaiah 53 is among the most astounding prophecies about the suffering Messiah in the entire Old Testament. There is a distinct possibility that the Ethiopian had heard something of what happened with Jesus and the infant church. As this question to Philip suggests, though he was reading about the suffering Messiah, he didn't understand that those verses applied to Jesus or had even the slightest inclination of his association with Messiah. It appears that the Ethiopian was reading from the Greek Septuagint, which makes sense for he probably needed to know Greek to properly discharge his duties as a head of finances for the queen of Ethiopia. The reason why the eunuch asked who was the prophet speaking about, either himself or someone else, many have made the claim that Isaiah was talking about himself, for he suffered much at the hand of King Manasseh. Yet there is no way that this portion of scripture can be applied to the great prophet, and it seems like even the eunuch understood this. We see in this powerful man a true expression of humility that's beautiful, and this awakened in him the spiritual hunger he had after God. If he would have been like the religious elite in Jerusalem, then he would have been a proud know-it-all that would only expose his ignorance. But this man was genuinely humble, and that's astounding for someone who had reached the pinnacle of power and wealth like he did. This traveler was fully occupied with the subject of this portion of Scripture to such an extent that he invited a stranger to advise him on the meaning of those verses. We are living in some hard days where it's difficult to find people that are spiritually hungry like this eunuch was. It seems like it's a fight to see people get saved and then a fight to keep them saved. Yet they never reach spiritual maturity because they don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. We find that in verse 35. Let's just take a couple of minutes to look over what the Ethiopian read from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The Hebrew idea of being led is to be conducted by another. Two illustrations are given to press this point home. The first is how a sheep is led to be slaughtered. It offers no resistance to those who are leading the animal to its very death. The second is of the silence of a lamb who was being sheared of its wool. No opposition was offered, but a silent resignation to what must be done. These two illustrations make the point in how Messiah would not open his mouth in self-defense, complaint, or anger. Messiah had a mission to complete, and nothing would keep him from finishing what the Father sent him to do. 
Then Isaiah wrote that in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. No one knows humiliation more than Messiah. God, in becoming human, humbled himself beyond anything any of us can understand. He took upon himself the form of a creature, a servant, and this is the greatest act of humility that was ever done in all of creation and is clearly seen in his birth, life, and crucifixion. For God to stoop down to become human means he had to span the infinite distance between his boundless majesty and our frail humanity. It's not just that he humbled himself to such a mind-boggling extent, but the God of all justice was deprived of justice from the ones he had created. Not only was Jesus' trial thoroughly illegal according to the Mosaic law, but he was deprived of justice throughout his entire ministry years by the cruel and heartless attacks of the religious elite. The injustice goes even further. Christ's sham trial ended in his being falsely condemned and judged by the pagans. The Roman government inflicted upon the innocent Savior the cruelest executions, which is crucifixion. Before he was crucified, they beat and scourged him mercilessly without a justifiable reason. Mankind showed God incarnate the ugly reality of human injustice. They failed to comprehend that one day they would give an account to Jesus, the just judge of all the earth, who always does what is right in every situation and with every person. Throughout his entire ordeal, Jesus didn't defend himself or to call down wrath upon his persecutors. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Yet we are told, who can speak of his descendants? This is like the hymn that asks, Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Through the travail of his soul, the Savior would reap a harvest of souls that's innumerable. Many thought Jesus' silence and meekness was weakness, yet none of them made the blind see, the lame walk, cleanse the leopard, or raise the dead to life. None of his persecutors possessed the infinite power like Jesus did, yet he kept it perfectly restrained. He declared to his disciples that he could, with a word, call down twelve legions of angels. Or we could take this further. He could merely speak a word and creation would have been no more. This prophecy was talking about the most dangerous person this world has ever known, who was a sacrificial lamb that was to be slaughtered as our sin offering. The prophecy went on to declare, for his life was taken from the earth. The author of life would have his earthly life taken from him by the very ones he created and gave life to. His murderers didn't know that his divine life had no beginning and can have no end. It was the divine life that raised his mortal body from the dead, giving to it the timeless life that only God possesses. We have no way of knowing how Philip brought to the Ethiopian the gospel plan of salvation, except by unfolding to him Isaiah 53 and the wonder of the cross. Verse 36 takes the story a little further. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look! Here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip must have been riding in the Ethiopian's chariot. How far they traveled and how long they talked, we aren't told. My guess is that they talked for a long time because the Ethiopian must have heard the account of John the Baptist and the important part water baptism plays in giving public testimony to our salvation. Notice that it wasn't Philip who suggested this, but the eunuch himself. This further paints a picture of the Ethiopian's character and the humility that defined him because he was going to get baptized before all of his servants and soldiers. 
What happened after he was baptized in water only solidified the man's newfound faith and showed the truth of his decision to all those who were in his entourage. We see here a beautiful expression of true salvation and what it does to the person, for it's radical and revolutionary. This wasn't a cowardly conversion where he was ashamed of Jesus and didn't want others to know what had happened to him. The Ethiopian was bold in his new faith, and I have to think that when he returned to his queen, that he humbly yet boldly proclaimed his new faith to her and anyone who would listen. I am so weary of the wimpy American half-hearted conversions we see today that aren't real conversions, but only lip service and a superficial belief in the existence of God. Where are the New Testament salvations we see in the book of Acts and that I saw in the Jesus revolution that I was saved in? It's so hard to see people saved, and then it can be hard working with them to keep them saved. But that's not how the biblical faith works. For like I just said, it's radical and revolutionary. That's what we need right now, and that's what we need to be praying for until the Lord brings a fresh wind of revival. As we come to verse 37, we have to address a major issue. The New King James Version translated this verse as, when Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The problem is that there's only a few late manuscripts that contain this verse, and it's totally lacking in the oldest and best manuscripts. This means that the evidence is very strong that Dr. Luke didn't write this verse, but was inserted at a later date. Now what's interesting about this scribal insertion is that it reveals how the early church understood the confession of faith. It's obvious that salvation didn't come through water baptism, for it was only a confession of their faith in Christ. They had to have faith in Christ, and it takes place in the heart, as Paul taught us in Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. This also reveals how the early church understood our Lord's deity and gives some expression to the Trinity. Verses 38 and 39 are original and read, And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Though it's not said, it's easy to imagine that the attendants to the Ethiopian gathered around to see this very prestigious person be baptized in water to make a public confession of his faith in Christ. For security purposes, a man of such prominence would have had a large number of people to protect him and take care of him, and they saw what the eunuch did. The importance of this event is that it would enhance the man's testimony of his faith in Christ and powerfully influence those who are with him and the Ethiopian nation as well. I gather from this account that the Lord wanted to make some major inroads into northern Africa, and this was certainly a great way to do it. What we also see is that water baptism was not sprinkling, dipping, or done for infants. This was adult believer baptism, and was most certainly full immersion in water. This is followed by the remarkable thing that happened when Philip lifted the man out of the water. Philip is instantly snatched away by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. One moment he is standing in the water with the Ethiopian, and the next moment he is physically gone. Since this isn't something that we commonly see or are able to explain by science, we must take this event by faith just as we must do with any other miracle that's recorded in Scripture. 
And yet this isn't the only time something like this happened, nor will it be the last. Nonetheless, it is the only time in Scripture that it happened in this way, and the Lord doesn't have a problem with doing new things. This is actually a type of rapture. The first time a rapture kind of event happened in Scripture was with Enoch, who was translated into heaven without going through death, and this happened because he was pleasing to God. The second time a type of rapture happened was with Elijah. He was also translated into heaven without tasting death, but did so by traveling in what appeared to be a chariot of fire. His attendant Elijah saw him caught up in the heaven, and the anointing that rested on Elijah as a national prophet came upon Elijah in a double portion. Then we see Christ himself that ascended into heaven in a type of rapture with over 500 people witnessing this event. We know the story. He was crucified, then raised to life, and then walked the earth for 40 days before his translation into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. This type of rapture was different than the others in that Jesus tasted death, and after his resurrection, he was taken up into heaven in bodily form. Now we have Philip being raptured, but in a different way than all the others, for he wasn't translated into heaven, but only into another part of the country. Though all these accounts are similar, they are also a little different. They are all types of a rapture, a catching away. I believe these were all done so that we could have hope in the future rapture that's awaiting the bride of Christ. This catching away of Philip right before the eyes of the Ethiopian and all his attendants must have been shocking and faith-building at the same time. Now, why did the Lord do it this way? Well, since we aren't directly told, we can only make a couple of educated guesses. I think that this was done to solidify the eunuch's heart and mind in the truth that Philip spoke to him about. Any doubt would have been removed, and the fact that his attendants witnessed this event means that there were many eyewitnesses that could testify to the validity of the event. This type of rapture offers us a little understanding of what might take place after the rapture of the church. When it happens, the mass of humanity will be left behind to face a tribulation. Among those who are left behind will be lukewarm Christians, backsliders, and those who knew about Christ but refused to serve him. This event will shake many of them so deeply that they will surrender to Christ, while others will only grow deeper in their hatred of God. The rapture will not only be a loving act for the true church, but it will be a radical act of mercy for the lost and backsliders. The Lord will shake heaven and earth one last time so that the desire of nations might be shaken into the kingdom of God before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now just imagine that you are Philip, who was one moment baptizing a new convert, and the next you are in another place. Verse 40 explains this. Philip, however, appeared at Esdras and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. If you think Philip was wound up before, this event took him to a whole new level. He was probably bouncing off the walls with excitement for Jesus. I can't imagine what something like that felt like, if he even felt anything of the actual miraculous transportation. It may have been more like waking from a deep sleep after you've been having some vivid dreams. At first, you don't know what's going on until the fog begins to lift from your mind. Then you begin to realize you are in a totally different place, and then you wonder why. We have no way of knowing how long it took Philip to grasp what had happened to him. Did he instantly appear in the town square, in an alley, or in someone's home? And did anyone see him just pop into the room or the town square? 
That would add a whole nother dimension to this story that wasn't recorded for us. There's so much of this story that we don't know, and I wish we did. Some commentators say that the city was about 34 miles away from where Philip baptized the Ethiopian. Distance and time are nothing to God, so it probably took only a fraction of a second for it to happen. It's irrelevant if the distance was around the world or into heaven itself, for we are told that the rapture will take place in a mere twinkling of an eye, and God could do it faster than that if he wanted to. Wow, I can't wait. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. No more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill.